So hello and welcome, happy Friday. Today is Friday, October the 6th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 227. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here with me this Friday, first Friday in October. Things are turning bad right away. This past week we had really good weather. In fact, the opening sequences that you saw today were video recorded yesterday morning because it was a totally different situation, plus overnight, we had uh, rain. How much rain? Three quarters of an inch. How hot is it outside today? 68 degrees Fahrenheit with uh, mostly cloudy skies. That's 20 degrees Celsius, 1.1 mile per hour wind. Basically a perfect day to be outside. And it's 67% relative humidity. Not so different from the humidity levels you would find inside your beehive. And uh, the next five days, 40s to 50s, rain, clouds, misery, and so on. So anyway, I hope you're all buttoned up. I hope things uh, got under control for you. If you want to see what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you'll see all of the topics listed in order. If you're listening to this as a podcast through Podbean or any other podcast uh, that you happen to use, it is listed under the way to be. And I also add those timestamps so that if you're listening as a podcast, you can click a timestamp takes you to the YouTube video. So what else is going on? Um, do, 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 do. Don't forget, while the weather's great, I know, it's not my place to tell you that, but I'm just reminding you, just in case you happen to be wasting a beautiful day when you could be outside updating all of your hives, making sure that uh, you've updated your records. Writing down things that you've done with your bees is very important, and the reason is, you might forget if you're like me, even if you just have a few beehives, and I have a few too many. So this winter, I don't know what's going to happen. We just have too many beehives here. So if you want to know how to submit your own question, please go to thewaytobee.org. You can just follow the link down in the video description. It'll take you to the page where there's a form that you can fill out. I've also been trying to catch up on some 
old comments. The way YouTube works it out is they list the comments that I've not responded to. And I'm all the way down to three years ago. So if you get a response from me from a comment you might have made many years ago, that's what's going on. I'm trying to catch up. So I answer the current questions first. Then I get to the old stuff. So I'm caught up to three years ago. And I just try to keep plugging away. So the questions that were submitted today are the topics that are suggested. We're all done through that form. Some people just write directly on a video, which leads me to the very first question for today. It was a comment actually left on one of my videos. And I believe it was last Friday's Q&A actually. So here's the thing. It comes from Pat Meyer 8287. That's the YouTube channel name. And it says robbing stations. My dad and grandfather are rolling in their graves. I come from a family that ran commercial honeybees for 20 or 30 years. Please stop promoting open feeding and robbing. Lots of negatives. Okay, so this is a topic that, and I don't mind people disagreeing with the way that uh, I keep bees. I mean, where would we be as beekeepers if we didn't have these great discussions? Because that's how we work out what works well for us. Uh, and the thing is, I've changed my robbing practices, robbing station practices, and those of you who are new to beekeeping might just be kind of conflicted. In other words, if you pick one person's method for keeping bees, it doesn't mean you dislike everybody else. You're just picking a method that works for you and makes sense. So what I try to do here is give you both sides kind of of the discussion so that you can kind of make up your own mind rather than simply say what I do and how I do it uh, let's talk about why others may do things differently and what the concerns are. Because there are different parts of the world. Those of you who are down in Australia, for example, may live in an area where feeding openly isn't even legal. So let's talk about why that's an issue or not. And I'll give you my reasoning behind that. Okay, so first of all, what's a robbing station? Robbing is when bees are going after resources that are not coming from their own hive and also they're gathering resources that they're not otherwise earning. They're not flying out and getting it from the flowers themselves. So they get nectar and pollen from flowers. That would be foraging. When they go to another source where it's already prepared, where they're already getting honey or they're already getting things that are finished off, that becomes robbing. So we use the term kind of loosely but we create a robbing station. And one of the reasons I really want to talk about this is the very first topic for today is because it's something that this time of year is very important. And the reason is that a lot of people are supplemental feeding their bees. And you will see lots of YouTubers, lots of people with uh, excellent histories in beekeeping and surviving bees for winter and things like that, putting out five gallon or even 50 gallon barrels of sugar syrup to feed their bees, and that's called open feeding. I call it a robbing station. Open feeding is just putting out syrup, which is sucrose, for the bees to rob down. And then they take it back to their hives. So you're gonna see a lot of people doing it. So in this comment here, I understand that uh, commercial beekeeping, dad and grandfather, obviously were opposed to open feeding. And the reason that I can imagine that people are opposed to open feeding is because the bees come together and they definitely rub shoulders. Their bodies are in as close a contact to one another as they can possibly get at these open feeding stations. So I'm gonna give you some food for thought about that. Uh, one of the things right off the bat is 
My bees, where I live, are interacting with each other and with each other's colonies more than I ever thought they might be. And the reason we know that is because they're capable of a lot of drift. And I'm talking about 20% of a colony of bees that you own may not be from that hive. So they're drifting in significant numbers. So for example, if we're putting out a feeding station or a robbing station, and the bees get together there side by side and they're rubbing their bodies up against each other or they're feeding out of the same cells if you're using them to clean up frames, which is one of the primary things I do this time of year. Um, they are exchanging whatever happens to be on their bodies. They are, of course, the senior bees. They're the older bees in the hive. And uh, so they're the ones that are also foraging on flowers and things like that. So it is a risk that they will interact with one another, but my logic behind that is that they're already interacting with one another. They're going to interact at watering stations. They're going to interact at the pond where most of them get their fresh water for their hives. So isolating them, and I understand the logic too, that if we provide a high sucrose, a high sugar environment for them, they're going to get very frenzied and they're going to feed on that and they, they create layers. They can actually pile on it. So there are fixes and things to think about, but I also want to let you know why I personally no longer open feed sugar syrup. Uh, I've done it to test sugar syrups or to test preferences for the bees, but I've never put out a five gallon uh, container to feed the bees, for example. But, and this is why I call them robbing stations. Now a robbing station or wherever you choose to feed your bees outside the hive one thing I will say that I hope everybody agrees on, and that is that it should not be in the close proximity of your beehives. So don't, I've seen people pull things out of a beehive um, because they've done some work on the beehive and maybe it's dripping in honey and they just set it right on top of the cover board of the hive. Or they'll lean it against uh, the side of a beehive and let bees come and clean it up. And that seems like a harmless thing to do, but you really need to go out in the bee yard this time of year when they become very competitive over food resources uh, because they, they will attack each other. They do fight uh, because the numbers are so great and the resources are so few. So what happens is they'll pile up and they'll consume those resources up against that beehive or wherever you've put them. And then when that's exhausted, they are still in that feeding frenzy and they've brought other bees with them. So now you'll see bees even by the hundreds potentially on the back, underside, side, near the cover, all around that particular beehive where the resource was located. It's a huge concern because now those bees are putting pressure on the guard bees on that landing board. And if the guard bees get overwhelmed and just a handful of those uh, really intensely foraging bees now get inside that hive. You can lose your hive in October due to robbing. So that's step one that I want to caution people about, and that is get your resources that you're going to have the bees clean up as far away from your beehives as you possibly can. Remember, your bees foraging range is potentially several miles in every direction. So what does that mean? It means that the bees that are at your feeding station might not be your bees. And that's what actually, that was the wake up call for me. Now, I've been keeping bees since 2006. So learning new things all the time, like you, I might go to a YouTube channel or I might have talked with somebody who says, yep, I put 
all this open feed out and there are feeders and designs for that that can be just out there. There are buckets specially designed to feed sugar syrup openly. But I decided when I was looking at that and I wasn't actually looking at a feeder per se, I had a rack that I made that supports the, um, the frames for my beehives. And then I was putting that on a table. And the reason I put it on a table is because I don't want a bunch of ants and things that are creeping along the ground to also have access to the frames and things that I'm putting out for the bees to clean up. So when I put out the frames of honey that were out for the bees to rob this time of year, so not this particular year, but this is how I discovered that I would no longer open feed. And it's because I put them there and they were wall-to-wall bees. And I started paying attention to the bees around this feeding station and it is well away from where I keep my bees. So well away from the hives themselves. Uh, but what happened was I was noticing their direction of flight. When bees are loaded up and they can take on about 30% of their body weight. That's an average. But they can be heavy loaded, their abdomens extend. And you know when a bee has been feeding heavy because that worker will start to if you look at their abdomen, they do this little twirling and arranging and they're like sorting themselves out before they fly away. And when they fly away full, they're flying a little slower because that's interesting too and it gives us a chance to look at them. I noticed they were flying in a direction that does not include where I keep my own bees. So, the next thing I wanted to do is improve visibility of the bees that are flying away. So what do you think I did? Since they're piled so heavily, I just took confectioner's sugar, powdered sugar. And at first I was just taking like a tablespoon or a teaspoon, scooping it, and I would just drop a blob of it on the bees and then they'd, you know, be very upset and get off of whatever they were feeding on. And then they would fly away with this white uh, coating all over them, which makes them very conspicuous, especially on a day that's not necessarily sunny. They really stand out and you can see what direction they're going. And then I also got a confectioner's sifter. It's a little, it looks like an ice cream scoop, but it closes up and it has holes over one side. So then I would just tap that over them and it would puff the powdered sugar onto the bodies of the bees. Now here's the cool thing about honeybees. One of many cool things, by the way, but they can't completely groom themselves clean. So what they end up with is an hourglass shaped white patch on their thorax. You'll see them sweep their legs back and try to groom off, but bees being social, they really depend on one another to clean up their hairs and clean up their bodies. So now I have bees with white all over their bodies. So now I can go back to my own bee yard, look at my own hives, and see if the bees that I'm feeding at that station are coming back to one of my hives. And if they're not, where are they going? So I did find out some of them were in fact coming back to my own beehive, but it was a very small percentage of the bees that were at that robbing station. Now being a robbing station is not that big a concern because I just want my frames cleaned up. I want those combs groomed out and licked clean every inch of it. Very few things could clean up your honey processing equipment better than the bees themselves. So before I put my frames of extracted honey out for cleanup, uh, before I put them away for storage, they go out, they get cleaned up by the bees. And then after that, and this relates to another question further down the line here, but I do wash them off with fresh water when I'm finished and they get 10% uh, bleach and water solution, 10% bleach to water. So I spray that down too, and then over winter storage, they're protected from bacteria by the bleach. So they've been cleaned by the bees and so on. So then what I find out is the bulk of those bees are flying off to somebody else's. Now this leads me to my other line of thought. 
you are um, doing things other people's bees without their potential permission, right? So here's the thing. Uh, if you put out sugar syrup, and it, who doesn't like to see a bunch of bees getting sugar syrup? Years ago, I put out a whole bunch of Bee Smart Designs uh, tank style feeders. They had the open troughs. And I loved having those out on cinder blocks all arranged in different areas so I could see the bees coming and going. It's like having a bird feeder. They all come, you get to see them, they all fly away. But now I know I'm feeding my neighbor's bees. Let's just be honest about that. Now, what if my neighbor does not want sugar syrup coming back to their hives? If you're open feeding, their bees are going to find you, particularly in a time when the flowers, the nectar, all that stuff is in decline. There's a huge foraging force out there. If you get these warm, sunny days, the bees are going to come and they're going to scout your apiary and they're going to find nectar resources. And all sugar syrup is, is, you know, fake nectar. It's just sucrose. So when they find it and they go back, you're feeding their bees without their permission. So unless you're on really good speaking terms with them and you don't mind spending the money to feed your neighbor's bees, or feral colonies of bees, then uh, that's up to you guys. But it's something I want you to have in the back of your mind. But here's why um, I'm explaining why I don't open feed, but I do allow the robbing station. So right now, and one of the things is they're very complicated to clean up. And this is the flow hive, the flow hive supers. They are complicated. So after cycling those, and we had a very good flow hive year, by the way, and I'll show, hopefully showing a video up in the corner here of the Flow Supers at my robbing station. It's at the edge of the woods. I cycle the flow frames for those of you who have questions about that. And when they're cycled in the open position, the hexagonal cells are split like this. The honey trails down, comes out a trough at the bottom. So I close them. They're in the closed position. So they're completing that hexagonal cell. And at the bottom, that trough where the honey drips down into and comes out and that you collect it into your jars, then uh, I pull those plugs and leave those open because those also have honey residue. And it is amazing how capable the bees are of going into those tubes and sticking their little tongues into every little nook and cranny. So particularly when it comes to the flow supers, they come off, they go to my robbing station, and I do allow bees from I don't care where they've come from what am I feeding them honey now if you're being very strict about this and probably the reason why some areas have it listed as an illegal activity honey can contain virus loads from your beehives but I'm going to take you back for me personally to this drifting and exchange of bees throughout my apiary already that's happening. So the potential, if I have foul brood in my apiary, there's a very good chance that I'm already spreading it throughout the apiary. Now I'm not saying if you've got foul brood, don't worry about it, put it out there. If you've got American foul brood or European foul brood, deal with that absolutely. So if you've got an unhealthy colony and you know that they have a brood disorder, sack brood too, or anything else that you think is anything but a healthy beehive, please do not take any component from that hive and cycle it into other hives. I don't care how much honey is on it. Now the honey for people is safe for consumption, 
but don't pass on, hopefully, don't pass on pathogens that are in a hive that's failing, that's dying out, that's sick. Don't put that out to an open feeding station because we want to not spread it through our own colonies too. So we would almost guarantee it spread if we have that going on. So that's why I, these are healthy colonies. I don't have any sick colonies right now. Nothing that you could pinpoint as having a brood problem or anything like that. My biggest problem with my beehives right now is that a couple of them are still queenless or they've got new queens that haven't been mated and the drones are being killed. So I have big concerns about those colonies even surviving winter. But back to the feeding station, this is my step and this is part of my process for cleaning up my equipment, spraying it with, uh, rinsing them with fresh water afterwards, and then spritzing them all with 10% bleach solution, putting them into storage. Now your next question might be, well, when springtime comes around, won't they all smell like bleach? Won't that be bad for the bees? Uh, it does. It smells like swimming pool, which is, you know, exactly what I actually like the smell of. If you're going into your storage area, and this is something that surprises a lot of new beekeepers, how much storage space you need. And make sure it's a clean area where you can have airflow. Light is not a bad thing either, but clean frames like that, ready to go for next year in your storage area. If you walk in there and it smells a little bit like a uh, swimming pool locker room, with all the towels of bleach and everything, that uh, chlorinated water, that to me is a clean smell. Now the chlorine, the bleach itself, dissipates very fast, but the results, in fact, the benefits of that continue. Last thing you wanna do is be pulling up a bunch of frames in the springtime when we need to expand our hives and find out it's got black mold on it because you left a bunch of honey or sugar syrup or something on the surface. So the other thing is uh, people that don't do that may put it in storage, like even a tote, the hive butler tote, for example. And you open it up and it smells sour. It smells like it's fermenting. And that's because if you left a bunch of honey on those frames and now condensation forms, so that's water forms on that, and it increases the water content of the, the uh, honey residue that's on the surface of these frames, and now you get fermentation and that's where you get that sour smell. So you can avoid that. Now, if you're not gonna open feed the way I'm describing, if you're not gonna have a robbing station because you don't want it, I'm gonna give you the flip side of that. Take them outside, rinse them with cold, fresh water, wash out both sides of your frames, and you need to soak them too because you wanna get any pollen that's in there out. We don't need this year's pollen in next year's brood area. So when we clean that all up, get the pollen and stuff out, you know, still rinse it and then put it in storage. You can just air dry it. If you're against the bleach for whatever reason, you still have rinsed it with fresh water and then you just air dry it. And of course, when you're air drying it, what's the angle of the cells? They all tilt down about 13 degrees. So you would flip them all upside down. So if you're making a rack for your hives, you could flip them upside down and now all your cells will drain. And if they don't drain, of course, they will just dry out through evaporation. So run a fan in there, a really low wattage fan. So for me personally, I appreciate the sentiment of this and that it was not the practice of these commercial beekeepers to open feed, but I'm saying use it for a robbing station, clean up your stuff and use that process. But I'm also giving you the flip side. If you're against that, then of course, just clean the stuff up yourself, but please don't put away extracted frames that you've just taken honey out of, uncapped, put them in a rack, and now take them straight to storage. 
you will attract other pests that way too because that sugar is hard for pests to ignore. So that's my guidance on that. And I do appreciate that comment. And I actually like comments that disagree with me. Now don't do it just because you want to test me and disagree with me. But um, I do like to explain both sides of why I think a certain way. Because who knows? A question that challenges a practice that I demonstrate or explain here uh, might not be a good practice. And maybe I would change my ways if I felt that the argument was valid enough that I should not do it. So just to be clear about it, I do not open feed. If I feel that a colony has to have sugar syrup this time of year, uh, I'm putting it directly on the inner cover of the colony inside. No open feeding, yes to open robbing. So question number two comes in from Jason, Elk River, Minnesota. I'm getting my three hives ready for a long and cold Minnesota winter and have a question about my emergency winter feed setup. I'll be once again using Hive Alive fondant patties. I use the insulated inner cover and outer covers from Better Bee. My question is, should I put the patty right on top of my brood frames and put the insulated inner cover right on top or should I have the fondant above the insulated inner cover somehow? Last year, the bees ate the fondant and I needed to add more. When it is directly on the brood, I have to open up the hive. In cold weather conditions and sometimes more bees than I'd like flew out, would it be better to have the fondant patty above the insulated inner cover? Would the bees be able to access it enough? And could I perhaps double up the fondant patties this year? Under the cover to make sure I don't run out. It says, I'm not sure there'd be enough room under the domed cover. Okay, so I'm just going to guess that Jason hasn't watched the way I set up my feed because I do not put these, and we're talking about these fondant packs. This one has an expiration date of July of 2024, so it has to be used by July of 2024. They have a two-year shelf life. This is Hive Live Fondant. Okay, and uh, I'm just going to explain how I use it because questions have come up about these insulated inner covers, but this is just the insert from the insulated inner cover that is sold at Better B. What do I get for mentioning that? Absolutely nothing. All right, on the inner cover, and any inner cover, but this is the styrofoam insert. You have a hole in the middle. The discussion is Jason would put it underneath here, right on top of the frames. Is that the most efficient arrangement? It is actually for the bees, directly on the frames. And the component that goes on top of that is this, that insulated inner cover inserts into this, and this is slightly domed, sits right on the box, and then so now this would be underneath. That is not how I do it, for the reasons and concerns that Jason just wrote about. Number one, in the middle of winter, I wanna be able to, you get those warm days, it's only 35 degrees or something, and it's super sunny, so you just get out there, all the icicles are melting, everything's dripping, all the birds are singing, it's a perfect day, there's no wind. And you decide, I want to pop that outer cover and I want to see what's going on with my fondant. Insulated inner cover, fondant on top of it. This is how I use it. Around this is a medium super that I use expansion foam to attach to this bottom. So these parts don't come apart anymore. But guess what I get to do now? Look in. 
and I can see through this plastic, I can see how much of the fondant has been consumed. What do I put over the top of this? I put double bubble now. So little sheets of Reflectex right on top. All that does is keeps outside heat and cold off of my fondant. So what happens then is we have an insulated space here and we have a little hole that the bees will go up through to feed on the fondant. By the way, if you wanna know what Reflectex looks like, this is the stuff. You can get it in big rolls. It works really good for a lot of things. If you're trying to get a tan, it's really good. Anyway, this goes over the top of your fondant. Cut to slightly be tough to push in when you put it into your thing, into your feeder. Okay, I cut a little round hole here. There's no reason to cut this any bigger than the hole in your inner cover. When you put this on there, you're gonna see through the top how much of it they have consumed. Now, two parts of this question today, which falls right into my lap on something that Hive Live has just now offered, and I just ordered mine yesterday. That's right, I paid full price for it too. I bought a box of six of the new five pound packets. So they're twice the size of these. I believe these are two and a half pounds. Yep. These are two pounds, four ounces for this. But when you get the five pounders, now we've answered the question for Jason, could you double up on these? And some people tried to, you know, they put two of these together and then they just cut a hole through the whole thing, but now you don't have to do it. Now you just cut your hole through the five pound pack, put that on there, we have twice the capacity. So now I can put these on my smaller colonies, put the five pounds, I only bought six of them. So a box of six. And I'll put those on my larger colonies that I think would have, you know, more of the potential to use it up. How many of these did I go through per hive last winter, which was my first winter with them? I did not have a single colony finish one of these, but there are things you should know. One is I leave a lot of honey on my hives, more than 40 pounds. So this becomes an emergency resource. So this is a, an area that a lot of people are asking about this time of year. If we were having coffee and we got together for breakfast, which by the way is coming up for me soon, um, uh, the discussion is always winter feeding, winter preps, what's going on? Okay, so mine is very simple. We'll either put that on there, and I'll talk about this during the fluff section at the end, but the fondant packs are what I put on now. The other option, if fondant packs are expensive, and they are, but there's a big benefit to those, rapid rounds come in two sizes. Here's the big one. Here's the little one. These do not fit in nucleus-sized hives. The um, fondant packs for, let's say, for example, the Apame hives, okay? I take this pack and I cut it right in half and that leaves that entire edge open. And then what I do is I put that inside the feeder shim that's built in, it's part of the Apame system, it sits right there. And then they have the candy setting for the little route, the little plenum that goes up that your bees can go up and forage on when it's warm. Now here's the thing that I'm changing for Apame this year. I don't have an Apame question, but I'm gonna address it. On top of their feeders, I now will have a single sheet of Reflectex under the Apame cover over these feeders. And this allows me again on the same hot days, you can check it out, look at it. You're not gonna vent the hive when you do it. It's very simple, open, take a look. 
And here's what I also recommend whenever you go out to check the feed and resources on your hives, don't open it and then just, oh, they need food. Now you run back to get food somewhere. Always have the resource that you're ready to replenish with you. And that way, if you find it and they don't need it, fine, you've got it, you didn't need it, you close them right back up, they were good, you enter that in your log, how much food they consumed, date, time, and so on, other notes about the hive. Now, on the flip side of that, if you open it up, oh my gosh, it's completely done. And they do, by the way, push their way all the way into the little corners. They clean out those fondant packs because I leave them on right into spring, even after they no longer need it. And so if they've done that, and you go, oh, look. So then you peel up the one that's already on there. Your other one is ready. Peel it up. Put the next one right on top. Already has the hole cut in it. And you're back in business with your bees. Actually, the hives that concerned me the most uh, that I knew were kind of in trouble. You could assume that if they're not eating the fondant, well, they just have enough honey in there. And they're doing fantastic. And they don't need it. But here's the thing. They eat some of it no matter what their status is. Um, so I recommend putting them on the last week of October. So that's coming up. And so when you put them on, if they eat some of it, even if they just clear the little circle directly above that center cone, and that's where condensation, by the way, will form inside the hive. It's warm, that moisture hits there, and that is the cold surface up above. And, uh, that's where they'll use that condensation to help them metabolize the fondant. So I see it as a benefit. But it's the ones that don't eat any that worry me because now they're not they're not showing progress. They're not really looking that hungry. It's kind of weird that the colonies that need it the least will consume the most. But if they consume nothing, yeah, we kind of might have a dead hive. So that's where they serve as indicators for overall status and health. What are you going to do about it in the middle of winter anyway? Nothing. You just know you have a colony that's not eating a lot. They're not progressing. So that's my answer, not on the inside, and just as described here by Jason, uh, put your fondant on top for the same reason. You can check it. You're not venting the hive. You're not worried about chilled brood and things like that. You're not going to be a detriment to your bees and work efficient and fast. That's my recommendation. And there is a link down in the video description. A lot of beekeepers are selling Hive Alive fondant. Everybody I know that keeps bees. Um, and so I also have a discount for it on my website and the link is down in the video description. So you can get them at a discounted rate. I bought them. I used my own discount link to order my own. So there you go. Question number three comes from Brian and it says, Captain Brian, I have two hives going into winter. Hive one has two deeps and one medium. Hive two has one deep and one medium. Hive one is Loaded with stores, medium is 80% honey and nectar. The top deep is 80% capped honey, 15% pollen and bee bread, and 5% brood. The bottom deep is the typical brood, but at least two full frames of honey, and the rest a mix of brood and stores. Hive number two is strong, but low on stores. Can I take three or four frames of honey for one and boost hive two? I also plan on feeding the Hive Live fondant and sugar patties. Boy, was Hive 1 not happy with me during that inspection. One more things, or one more thing, it says, no mites in the alcohol wash. So that's fantastic. I love the stories this year about no mites, low mites, very few mite numbers, and no mite complications. 
That's great news. Okay, so here's the thing, because this is another thing that comes around this time of year. You have a weaker colony, you have a strong colony. Can you combine them? I have another question from somebody that I'm mentoring. And her concern was very similar to this. Do I take resources from a really strong colony that looks like they're going to more than make it through winter? And do I take them and do I pull frames of partially filled resources and fill them with full ones and then put those in the overloaded colony? Here's my personal thought on it. This really comes down to personal management. And what I like to do is um, at this time of year, now this is key because we're in October, the first week of October. I personally, in the Northeastern United States, this time of year, would not weaken the resources from one colony, from one hive, to fortify another one. Now, if you happen to have resources that you can help them out in some way um, that you've got stored, or you want to put spacers in there just as insulation, which is something that people do, remember that your honeybees will chew uh, polystyrofoam. So if you're going to do that, I would highly recommend um, that if you're going to put any kind of foam or insulation board, use regular wood glue, paint it onto this stuff, and face your panels, your insulation panels, which would be the size of a frame, right? So if you had, even if, let's say, you have an empty frame that just has plastic foundation on it, I'm just thinking about this right now, you could cover it with this insulation. Obviously, this one is not cut to be the full height, but I would, and I would sandwich it both sides, and I would hold this on if it's on a frame, you don't want to glue it to it. So I would just use large rubber bands and then use these to take up that extra space in position one and 10 if it's a 10 frame or position one and eight if it's an eight frame. And then just have an insulated space holder there because they're not going to bring in more resources now, at least not where I live, we're at the end of that. And uh, they're not going to be fortifying that. Now, you have to remember that those are in there because when spring comes along and it's time for the buildup, which happens very fast, catches everyone off guard, you want to be pulling those spacers out. So what kind of frame would I use for that? A lot of people have one-piece plastic frames laying around that they don't use. Maybe they're from Air Acorn. Um, Premier does not have one piece. But any of the plastic foundation frames that you have, I would... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm addicted to Reflectex these days because it seems to work well for everything and the bees don't chew it up. That's why I like it on there. If you just put that two inch rigid foam board or something like that, if you stick that in your hive, expect to find your bees chewing it apart because what they think, what we assume they think is that it's pulpy, that it's like, like wood that's not very strong anymore. So they're trying to excavate it and then they'll seal it up with propolis, which if they just seal it with propolis would be a great thing but reflect text. It's just what I'm recommending, and if that's what gets used here, but I'm not a fan at all. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't do it. I'm just sharing what I personally would not do, and that's pull from a strong colony, swap resources into a weaker colony. But I would insulate or provision to whatever level I can that weaker colony, and you're gonna find out that the Hive Alive fondant Goes a long way, works almost too well. I anticipated a lot of losses last winter. They did not happen. Now I can't say that was just due to hive life on it. It could have to do with configuration um, and everything else. So overall health, forage, you know, the way the bees are, who knows, but these are all contributing factors. Things that are under your control, of course, would be configuration, feed, resource distribution.
So don't take from a strong hive to feed a weak hive is my recommendation. Question number four comes from Jordan, Belgrade, I'm going to say Maine. Okay. I've been thinking about insulating my hive with two inch foam insulation and making a five sided box. So that would be front, sides, back, and top. Let's see, uh, and it would slide over the top cover. The front panel would be cut short enough so the entrance is not blocked. To slide it over the top cover would uh, leave a two inch gap and the whole way around the hive between the insulation and the hive sides. My question is, do you think it would be too sealed and they wouldn't get enough fresh air? And two, would that hold too much moisture inside? Okay, so we're back on the insulation discussions, which are never ending. Uh, the two inch foam board insulation is kind of what I described before. Sometimes it's pink board, sometimes it's blue. Uh, it comes from your building centers. And uh, the question is, if you wrap that around your hive and have it over the cover, um, what I like to do for my insulation, which right now my configuration does not change throughout the year. The reason I bring that up is uh, I only use single entrances. They are the bottom entrance on the landing board. I don't vent anything and I don't have any upper entrances. So if I opted to wrap a hive or insulate it in this way, it would not disrupt their normal management of air at all because it's only happening through the entrance to begin with. So to answer that question, would it disrupt their ability to cycle air through the hive? No. Uh, the other thing though is do they need it? Now, maybe up here in Belgrade, they might need it. I don't know how cold the climate is there. There is no doubt that, and when I say no doubt, it's been proven time and time again that people that live in these really terrible parts of the world where it's very, very cold, they benefit from more insulation. Uh, my bees make it through winter in top shape with just insulated inner cover and the venting description that I just gave you. No top vent, no upper entrance. Heavy insulation straight on top. And for the nucleus hives, and for those of you who don't know what a nucleus is, those are the small five frames. I also have the seven frame Apame hives going into winter this year. And they're going to be a lot of fun because they're underdogs. And I have late season swarms. We've only insulated the top and sides. What's the rest of it? Three quarter inch pine. That's it, except for Apame. Apame hives are definitely insulated and uh, they should get through winter this year. They went into winter last year handicapped because I put um, bees inside the Apame hives with the tops vented the way they come from the manufacturer. Just wanted to see how they would make it. They did not make it. Um, and this year we are going to, and my grandson was out here yesterday. We pulled an Apame hive apart and we pulled out the Ross rounds from... Uh, who makes that? Cirrocell made those Ross, Ross round brackets. So we're going to show that in another video that's coming up. But anyway, um, the reason I bring up the year round setup is because here's what I don't like in beekeeping. <laughs> so for me personally, I don't want to in spring have to pull off a bunch of insulation and go store it somewhere. So the next question that might come up is, well, if they put that two inch rigid foam board insulation and they only have the single entrance, isn't that good for year round? Uh, it could be, but here's what's going to happen. I can 99.9% .9 guarantee that you're going to have ants going up in between your hive 
and that insulation board. Now in the winter time, it's not an issue because ants are not on the move. But just like honeybees, ants are social insects and in the spring they swarm. And when you see them swarming, you'll see all the little queens with their wings on them so they can fly away. And they'll all start new colonies. They can move up into um, any kind of gap like that. So this isn't a configuration for year round. So that's why me personally, I don't want to store a whole bunch of rigid foam board insulation. I'm trying to clean up my shop and my work areas and where I process honey and all of that stuff. I'm trying to declutter. So the last thing I personally would want to do is put a whole bunch of stuff, but that is enough ventilation for the bees because bees have demonstrated time and time again, they manage with a single entrance. The question about the amount of moisture that would build up. The amount of moisture that builds up inside the hive really in the wintertime depends upon if there's any venting through the top where the dew point could be achieved. So in other words, what is a dew point? A dew point, a great example of that is you're in a restaurant and you need a glass full of ice water and you set it on your table and the glass starts to form water on the surface. Where did that moisture come from? It came from the air around you. Why isn't everything getting wet? Because everything isn't as cold as that glass of ice water. So if you have an interior surface of your hive that gets cold enough that the dew point is achieved, then condensation forms. And that's why if there's no top venting and you have a lot of insulation and your most insulated part of the hive should be the top, not the sides. So the sides can be a little slack, but the top needs to be warmer than the sides. And the reason I say that is you do not want this dew point to be achieved on the interior surface directly above your cluster of bees. So you also don't want your hive to be huge uh, because you want your bees to be in a space that the secondary heat that's just coming off of them, you can hear discussions frequently that bees don't eat the space. They don't, but just by your pure presence, you're heating the space, you're humidifying the space, you're respirating, when a whole bunch of people get together in a room, they will raise the temperature of the room, not because they're trying to warm the room, their bodies are trying to be maintained at a living temperature. Same thing with the bees when they're clustered together, they're keeping themselves alive, secondary heat rises, and then if the dew point's achieved, condensation forms. And when you have it completely sealed up, that here's the cluster of bees in the wintertime, the condensation forms about the lower third of that cluster of bees and then drips down the sidewalls is that bad? No, that's really good. And the bees need that moisture, particularly if they can't get out into a cleansing flight, water bees are gonna make use of that and get that in. So I'm not at all against that uh, description of how they're gonna insulate. So I say, I hope Jordan does it, lets us know how it goes and button it all up. Do it, I think it's gonna be great. Just not good for year round. Question number five comes from Donna Hav de Grace, Maryland. I know I messed that up. Anyway, question regarding queen and laying worker. Five weeks ago, I started a course of OAV treatments. For those of you who don't know, that's oxalic acid vaporization. Four days apart, four times at the beginning of the treatment, I had a laying queen. Several days after the last treatment, I went into the hive had no queen and only a small amount of capped brood. I purchased a queen, I put her in, the bees were somewhat aggressive to her, but it was starting to rain. I mentioned what I had done to a very experienced beekeeper and he convinced me that I likely wasn't queenless. 
I tend to agree with that. The following day, I pulled the queen, still in her cage, along with the frame of brood I had put into the colony, and I placed them in a nuke with honey, pollen, and frames. Today, four days later, I checked on the nuke, and the queen has been released. She is laying, checked on the large hive, and now have evidence of a laying worker. So, and here's an example again, where I get a comment like this, evidence of a laying worker. Please describe what you think the evidence of a laying worker is. Because you have a queen in a cage you were trying to introduce, you pulled brood and a frame and so on and put that together in a nucleus hive and put your queen in a cage in that and she came out and she's laying and productive. But now we go back to the original hive that we thought was queenless and uh, you're seeing evidence of a laying worker. So for those of you who are listening or watching, I think we need to understand what laying workers do and why we would suspect one or several. Usually laying workers are their multiples because they all start laying kind of at the same time. So um, I just want to talk about that real quick before I move on to the rest of the question. Usually when there's laying workers, you will see a bunch of uh, several eggs in a cell. You'll also notice primarily that they don't make it all the way to the bottom of the cell. So you see eggs stuck to the side walls, maybe two thirds of the way down. Multiple eggs, frequently not all the way at the bottom. Very good suggestion that there might be laying workers. If they are single eggs in each cell and they are all the way at the bottom and when they're first laid, it's standing straight up on the bottom of the cell, then it leans over a little bit, then it lays flat, third day. So depending on what you're observing there, that may be evidence that the queen is in there, you just never found her. So we're gonna move on. Uh, I have some QMP noodles. So QMP noodles are queen mandibular pheromone, what are called temp queen, and they're sold by Better Bee. I'm sure they're sold other places also. But uh, I have QMP noodles. If I put one of them inside the laying worker hive with a frame of brood and eggs, do you think that would stop? Okay, you have the potential for that to stop, but that is not what those QMP noodles are intended for. Well, the QMP noodles, queen mandibular pheromone, it gives your bees the sense that a queen is present, even if she isn't. The whole point is to stay off the potential for these workers activating their ovaries and then producing these eggs that then are drones. So if you have laying workers going on, once that starts, QMP doesn't really work to suppress them. It's not the end of the world. Couldn't hurt. They're only five bucks to buy two sets of those noodles. But I'm going to give you a different idea here in a minute. So it says, uh, I could then move the new queen over if that would work. I doubt the new nuke can make it through the winter at this point. I agree with that. It's going to be too small. But if I can get the laying workers to stop and put her into this large hive, I think they have a chance. After rain tomorrow, we should have sunny, warm weather. So I think my queen is good in the nuke for now. Northeast Maryland. Thoughts. Okay, so these are my thoughts. And I'm going to I realize you might not have this piece of gear. So you could try what you're describing. Try it. See what happens. Once that queen's in production and she has a bunch of brood, particularly when that brood is open, that is a very pheromone-rich area. They all have that queen's um, scent, the queen pheromone, her mandibular pheromone. Uh, QMP is all over the hive, and that's a great way to take over and suppress laying workers. 
Sometimes you get fighting, but the problem was introduction of the new queen. So one of the things that you could do, and this is for others that are listening that might encounter this. This was the cover shot for today. This is called a queen introduction cage. Now, and I just got this this year and I find other ways to use it, but if I had a brand new queen, which is a circumstance that you describe now, and if we had a bunch of uh, capped brood on this frame, right? And then we've got our queen on here too. And some of the nurse bees are emerging. So this would be just for conversation's sake. Let's say that this is our frame with brood queens on it that we're hoping to introduce, but we're concerned they might kill her. So she's on this frame. She goes inside this cage. This is not a uh, queen isolation cage. In other words, a queen isolation cage, these bars would be wide enough apart that the workers could pass through and uh, take care of the queen, take care of the brood, and go back out and work away on the rest of the colony. This is a queen introduction cage. So what I want you to notice is the bars on this are very close together. Even workers cannot get through it. Now that's key because the workers that would be emerging, those nurse bees that are going to emerge from the frame, from the capped brood, uh, they couldn't get out of that. So also the queen can't get out. So this is not a long-term thing you want to do. You just want to set it up long enough to create a pheromone takeover inside the hive. So the bees that are newly emerging there, they will be fed through the bars through trophallaxis, right? Because some bees just can't help but feed other bees that need it, including the queen that's in here, they're gonna be feeding her. The reason I say capped brood is because capped brood no longer needs nourishment from the bees. All they need is warmth and protection. And then when they come out, they go to work cleaning everything. I would leave this in here uh, until you no longer see eggs being produced in cells outside of this cage. So if you no longer see any new eggs being produced, then it's a safe bet that your laying workers are suppressed. And then you just pull the top of this off, take that frame out, pull the cage out, put this frame right back wherever this cage was. Hopefully it's dead center in your brood area. And now you put the frame with all the brood, the queen and everything. And I think you've solved your problem. So one of the things I like is having equipment like this on hot standby. Uh, just in case I have an opportunity to test it out and use it. So I'm describing a theory in, to you about what I think would work. It's not something I've actually done. So, but I understand the utility of having cages like this. I used the uh, queen isolation cages this year and they worked really well. So that is again, a queen introduction cage and that could work because it lets them continue to work on brood. She could still be laying and they can be doing all of their stuff. But what can't happen is the workers in that hive that you introduce her to cannot get through those bars, cannot attack and kill the queen and cannot attack and kill the workers that have come with her. So it's a very interesting way to introduce a new queen to a colony that might not be that receptive. However, you could still be in a pickle if you find out that there is in fact another queen in that hive and she's laying and that they're not laying workers, now you have a choice. You've got two laying queens to solve this problem and combine them all for wintertime, you're gonna to have to remove your least favorite queen and just get rid of her. So, 
Can't wait to hear what happens. I hope you'll update us what you did, how it turned out, and how great your bees are doing. Moving on to question number six comes from William in Maryland. So two people from Maryland, interesting. Do you guys know each other? So anyway, moving on. I've just received my new insulated inner covers and they have three sixteenths inch holes all around the edges. These holes will be inside of the bee box. When installed, the bees should propolize them, but if not, other things can make their way in. What may be the reasoning for this? Thank you for your time and so on. Okay, we're talking about this insulated inner cover again without the insert. The holes are something I brought up last week, I believe, and that's why I drew all this stuff together. But let's look at the back of it. It's easier to pick them out. These are the holes that we're talking about here. Now these holes are not accessible to the outside. So nothing's gonna crawl up the side of your hive and get into this inner cover that way. The way this is configured, these are weep holes. So in other words, I don't know the condensation really builds up up here at all. I've never seen it, but if it did, it would now be able to go down and drain through these weep holes, which would be going down the inside sidewall of your hive. Uh, and I agree too, that if this is on long enough, I leave these on all year round and uh, the bees plug up the little holes, just as described. They use propolis, they plug that tiny hole and there's no concern anyway. So, but for this question, I'm saying that there's no way for tiny ants, for example, to come up and get into this through those tiny holes. The other thing is this vent that's on the front, it gives the people that want vents the opportunity to vent it. And those that don't want it, they can close it up. I close it up with aluminum foil because ants won't chew aluminum foil. So if you wanted to fail safe, get some kind of aluminized or metallic tape and just tape over those holes. But I have never had a single one of these and they're on all of my standard Langstroth hives. I've never had uh, ants go up in through that. They can't get in. They have to go up through the top, down the sidewall, down past the insulation, up and under the insulation, down through those holes. So I don't think it's that much of a problem. But if you do see some issue with it, please make a comment and let us know what happened and what you observed. Question number seven comes from Ed. Winona, Minnesota. So relatively new research has shown that certain mushroom species may be effective against varroa spread diseases. Research from Paul Stamets and others published in Nature has shown efficacy feeding certain fungal mycelium and additives to honeybees. Now this is something I track because Paul Stamets, he's a fantastic um, supporter of microcelium, Fungi Perfecti. If you want to check out the website, just Google Fungi Perfecti. And uh, he came out with you know a bunch of very promising stuff. He had a specialized feeder just for bees. Wrote them right away, this is years ago. Wrote them right away, said I was interested in it. Um, and this, and it is true, what we're talking about, the whole goal is to have a fungus that attacks and kills the varrodestructor mite. Do you think that's possible? It is doable, but here's the problem. And this comes up time and again, because it's a, it's a very promising thing. If that would work and it would attack only the varrodestructor mite and kill it, it'd be fantastic. We would just use it and feed the bees and get them out there and use the bees as a vehicle to spread it around 
But here's the problem. This does not survive in the climate inside the hive. So that's their stumbling block. It works under lab uh, situations, under controlled environments. But when the high humidity, the low CO2 levels, everything else that goes on inside a hive, where we need these to live and for this to happen and hoping the whole time that the bees don't just clean it up. Um, it has not yet worked. I think it's fantastic. Can't wait for it to work or for them to isolate a strain. Maybe they're making progress with it. I did do a Google Scholar search. I looked for published papers on it. Um, and uh, Best for Bees, that company knew of some of the researchers that are working on this and they're, they're making gains but there isn't anything right now that we could say is going to work to help. But it is something for those of you who are listening and want to follow that, Paul Stamets, fantastic guy. He did a great TED Talk. He makes the rounds. He's been on Joe Rogan, so he's popular. And uh, Fungi Perfecti, that's the website you want to go to check out and see what Paul's up to. But you're going to find that he's really focused on selling products for human consumption, human health, human well-being. Um, and I've seen no progress in the B category or the row destructor mites. Question number eight comes from Lynn Hastings, Ontario. Is it possible to overfeed your bees for winter? That's a very interesting question. But here's the thing: you could uh, you can provide too much feed for your bees for winter. Uh, remember that. What I try to do is size my food resources for each hive so that I don't end up with a huge surplus in spring because I really dislike it when I unpack a hive in spring and the nectar flow is on and there's still 40 pounds or 30 pounds of honey on that hive because we have to expand it. We have to lift it and we have to put that above um, the super that you're going to put on if they don't actually get up there and consume it. In a perfect world, the bees migrate through and uh, it's Dr. Leo Shirashkin who said that they, they move as a cluster about a millimeter a day in the wintertime. But I realize that must be widely variable, but he does lay-ins hives. So if you have a lay-ins hive, it's probably predictable. So they would move up through that and in a perfect world, they would be within an inch or two of the top, having consumed almost all of their honey. And then here comes the nectar flow and now they backfill it down. Now, overfeeding. So this is something that comes around because there's a term that I want everyone to be familiar with if you're not already. It's called being honey bound. And this can happen because recently, uh, my bees brought in a lot of resources in a very short amount of time. And uh, what they can do is they can start up backfilling all of the available cells, which includes the cells that your bees would otherwise be using for brood. Bees need to produce brood replacements because if they haven't already, they're currently making their fat bodied winter bees, which are nutritionally critical bees to be developed for wintering. Um, so if you overfed, let's say you gave them so much syrup and they were, if people say this frequently, I was feeding them syrup and they take a gallon every three days or something like that. I've never had a colony do that, but then I never gave them the opportunity to do that either because when I find forage, I want my bees on that forage, not feeding the sugar syrup. Another discussion will be, well, yeah, but they won't take that sugar syrup if there's forage. So they won't overfeed themselves. But it's been a different experience for me because whenever sugar syrup's available, they consume it even though other resources are available. So I withhold the sugar syrup. But here's the thing. We're avoiding overfeeding. Uh, you don't want your feed to spoil. 
So if you're in a warmer climate and you put sugar syrup on, sugar syrup has a shelf life. So one of the ways that you extend the shelf life of sugar syrup would be with uh, essential oils and a very controlled amount of essential oils. Don't go overboard. Uh, it can extend the life of your sugar syrup. So if your sugar syrup starts to get brown uh, mold in it or black mold, and by the way, I've not been able to find, we see the black mold in a sugar syrup or in a spray bottle or something like that that has just been sugar syrup, sugar and water. Uh, I've not found anything that says that that's detrimental to the bees or that it affects the bees' appetite for that sucrose. Uh, but I prefer just instinctively to give them clean syrup that does not have mold in it. So the thing is, uh, feeding them just enough to give them what they need to get them through winter so they can support themselves. That's what I really want. I want my bees to take care of themselves. Now I realize we get some strange weather patterns. We get abrupt weather changes. They get immediately cut off from environmental resources and uh, then you could be in a position to put food and resources on. That's why a feeder shim on top of your hive becomes very important. Um, so the overfeeding thing, you're gonna find that to be a toss up. Will bees take more than they need? Will they backfill every cell in the hive and leave themselves with no room for brood? So the population of the hive is strong and we feed them everything that they'll take and they fill every cell. Now they're honey bound, now what are they gonna do? Well, I'm not that concerned because I'm not worried that that's a trigger for them to swarm right now because when the temps drop into the 50s, we're pretty much shutting down swarming. And uh, the last thing I want is an October swarm. They're doomed for sure. Plus you lost your queen. There's no way they're gonna replace her. However, this is my take on it. So let's say they're semi honey bound, but this isn't from you. This is from the nectar that they're bringing in. We still have plenty of nectar in the environment here where I am. All they lack are the foraging days based on the weather forecast. So when they're bringing in the, if they fill their brood area, if you see frames where they've got brood, but then next to that, it's actually glistening with brand new uh, nectar that's been brought in. To me, that's not a problem. And here's why. What they consume first is the uncapped nectar that's inside the hive. So it's unfinished honey, maybe. They're, just, they're spreading it out so they can dehydrate it. And people think, well, then they can't dehydrate it. That increases the humidity in the hive at a time when it's going to get really cold. That's why I don't believe in feeding sugar syrup on a hive once temps drop below freezing, right? So that's when you go to fondants, dry sugar in a wrap it around, mountain camp method, which is a piece of paper on top of your, you know, your hive. And then you put dry sugar on top of that and then you close it up inner covers over the top of that and the bees gradually work through it and the moisture from inside the hive softens the paper bees shoot through it and that's called it's kind of a candy board you know it's called mountain camp why it's called that i don't know but it's sugar on paper that the bees consume uh, so those are emergency resources overfeeding what's going to happen is they're going to cluster over it all the cells that are open and not completely cured get consumed first that's it so the cells that they clean up on the brood area that are open, uh, they will consume that before they chew a capping off and get to stored honey. So that can disappear overnight. So I don't really get too concerned about that. I have had colonies that looked absolutely honey bound. Every part of it was capped honey, everything I could see. 
And we're talking primarily for me observation hives when I see that. But then within just a week or so, a big area was uncapped and now they have brood. So I think it's not bad. I don't think you can overfeed them. I think uh, you can put too much inside the hive. I don't, I'm not a fan of inside frame style feeding and stuff like that. Uh, I want whatever food I put on the hive to be accessible to me so I can remove it when I determine that they no longer need it. So testing your hives, finding out if they're heavy, if they're loaded, if they're stocked up and good to go. Um, I'm not worried about overfeeding, but it's an interesting question. I don't even know if I gave it as an answer to it. But uh, this time of year, I don't think uh, that is bad for them. Now in spring, if you put, if you decide that you just for some reason need to build up a huge amount of bees, and you're going to put a lot of syrup on there and you're going to put, you know, protein patties and pollen patties and everything else. Here's a cautionary tale. Uh, pollen patties, the hive alive pollen patties will boost a population really fast. I was thinking that uh, the pollen patties and pollen that you provision your bees with inside the hive, uh, that they also need the stimulus from outside. In other words, pollen needs to be coming in from outside for them to really, in a meaningful way, boost the colony. But here's what I learned this year. Uh, we got the pollen patties and uh, from Hive Alive, and I wanted to test them out on nucleus hives. So those are swarms that you collect, and often you get those late season swarms, late August, early September, and you put them in a little five frame nuke, and you really, you kind of don't connect with them because you're just like, ah, they're just doomed. I'm just putting them in there because I'll just hive them to see what happens. You put the Hive Alive uh, pack on one and you don't put a Hive Alive pack on the other. And by pack, I mean the pollen patties that they make. And you put that on there and the first sign is what I described earlier, a healthy colony consumes resources. So like the Hive Alive fondant patties, you see that they eat a little circle, good. They ate something, they're healthy, they have an appetite. The pollen patties, this is what I think, and you can check my thinking on this. When I put the pollen patty on there, this is a very small cluster of bees. It was a feral colony that the people that called, they couldn't get a beekeeper to come and get them because they're so small and uh, I guess too late in the year. For me, what do I have to lose? So I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about why you should collect a late season swarm, particularly if it's come from a tree. So where these people were, they have trees in their woods all over that are bee trees. So here was my chance to get a colony of survivor stock already adapted to my area. So I said, yes, I went, I put them in. Great opportunity to put the um, pollen in there. So what happened is bees need a division of labor. So the, the bee counters out there, the graduate students, the bee labs, the research centers that actually work out how many bees does it take to survive and to have this eusocial order and get all these jobs done, right? So we need foragers, we need guards, we need nurse bees, we need everything that's necessary to make a colony function. Foragers are very expensive. They have to go and get resources and come back. In the meantime, we need nurse bees to feed and nourish the brood that's being developed inside the hive. So then we need other bees that are gonna keep things warm. So we need enough bees in there as the nights get colder to keep that from 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit on that brood. 
So with this division of labor, what they do is they'll stick to whatever is the most critical, queen and brood. That reduces the number of bees that can go out, forage, bring resources back. So by putting, putting a pollen patty on them, we relieve some of the demand for foraging resources. So instead of going out foraging, they had more bees available to stay and do the in-hive work and protect the entrance. So by doing that, now we boosted the population because we had a pollen patty in there. I'm not a pollen patty guy. I just wanted to do it to see what would happen, see if we could take an underdog and boost them. But now that I see it, it makes perfect sense. We reduce the amount of work and driving out and doing everything else that they have to do. When I say driving out, see, I'm, I'm transferring this to people who have to leave home, get in their car, go to work or sit at home, be on the computer, save energy, consume less. So now these bees are staying in the hive. They're getting the resources they need. Landing board activity is much reduced and they built up brood. It's remarkable. So we're just now at the point where their brood are emerging. So without that patty, we would have probably seen less than half the development of that colony. And then so attrition would be higher than the replacements. So in these small clusters, small colonies, feeding, depending on what you mean by feeding, the pollen patties can definitely boost their resources. Now, overfeeding. Once they're up to a functional number, a size of cluster, 5,000 bees, whatever the magic number is, once they're at that point, would I continue with the pollen patties and giving them resources that they otherwise didn't go out and collect themselves? If I kept doing that, now I've got a big cluster of bees inside. I've got a large brood area. I've got a big demand for pollen and uh, for the protein resources that they need to develop, but the environment's no longer going to support that. So what I end up with is a nucleus hive that is going to consume its resources too fast, finish off what it has available, die in winter. So overfeed, feed enough, delicate balance, case by case. Next is Mark from Salem, Virginia. I seem to remember you talking about using bleach solution to spray your drawn frames for winter storage. You also mentioned using it on your bee suits. Okay, the bee suit part, I don't remember that. For cleaning bee suits, I don't think I use bleach, but I use that Dawn Free or Dawn whatever that uh, the people from Guardian Bee Apparel told me to use. So. But when it comes to spraying the bleach, I already talked about that today. Yes, I still use it. I use that on everything. I use that on chicken nest boxes. I spray 10% bleach on all the working surfaces inside hen houses and stuff. It, and leave it to dwell and dry out and kill whatever's on the surface. So anyway, um, I do. I do do that. The bee suit, I recommend Dawn Free or whatever it's called. No, that's Dawn. Tide Free. Sorry. So the tight stuff that doesn't have the stuff that's bad for your environment, whatever, that's what we use for bee suits. Um, so it's not falling out of favor. It's exactly what I use. And it also says, do you stack the supers tight to minimize critter entrance or stack them alternately at 90 degree angles? Yes. And the reason I say yes is because I do both of those. Um, I have a building, a little building with a porch on it built by the Amish. 
that uh, I stack both ways. So I've got them at 90 degrees, so crisscrossing each other all the way up. All my frames are in storage there right now. And then I have those where I put a big trash bag down, set a box on it, fold the trash bag over the top of the box, set another box on it, fold the trash bag. I can get three folds out of one big industrial trash bag. And then I start another one. So they're all stacked directly on one another and they have trash bags dividing them so nothing can go through and they're mouse proof. And I have cameras on them. So if the mice show up, I can do mouse studies. So I do both. And the reason I do both is because I want to see if one works better than the other. Guess what? Uh, they're working the same. So um, it is important. Now here's what I noticed. If I stick um, like inner covers in between these boxes, why you would do that, I don't know. But for some reason I did. And what happens is when you provide a horizontal platform in between your boxes, other than like the bag part where they're completely closed up, nothing can get in and out. But if you're crisscrossing them and you make one of those levels have a board of any kind, like an inner cover, you're going to get mice building a nest right on that inner board and they're going to chew your beeswax, they're going to chew your frames, and they're going to defecate all over everything and they're going to mark and they're going to put their, their little gang signs on stuff and they're going to tag things and it's going to look like freight cars going down the road and uh, you don't want to have any kind of horizontal surface for your mice to build um, nests in. But both of those things work. The other thing is putting a box up on end, but that's not a good use of space. Putting a box up on end that's got all the frames. Does that work? Yes, same thing. But uh, that is not a good use of space. The crisscrossing works, stacking, they both work. So it's a matter of personal preference. And one looks tidier. So you could fit more, if you're using the trash bags in between, you could fit more of them together. So if you've got a lot, you're going to run out of space quick if you're crisscrossing. But uh, that's it. Let's see. 90 granules, maximize airflow and light. So both work. Question number 11. This is the last one for today. I know that makes you happy. So Jerry from... Okay, this is interesting. La Salette, La Salette, Ontario, Canada. I don't, sorry, don't know that stuff. I'm trying to make a decision about feeding hives in October. I'm in Southwest Ontario. Some YouTuber bee experts are convinced feeding now to encourage brood is key. But I believe you're not one of them. Aside from late season swarms. I am but a modest backyard beak with five colonies and have a full 10 frame super of honey above two other mediums for brood. Okay. Um, yeah, I do not overfeed my bees. The ones that get fed are nucleus hives, late swarms. And if I find a colony that is really lightweight, that might get some feed on it, but you're right. I don't feed all my hives. And as described, I don't open feed. I allow them open robbing, which is not really gonna fortify any of the bees. Right now there are three or four flow supers out there and the bees are cleaning them up. But if you put that all together, even though there's hundreds, if not thousands of bees cleaning it up for me, um, we might be talking of a total of maybe a quart of honey that's distributed through all of them. So this isn't really very good feeding. So. Uh, but I do have the bee buffet style feeders out there on my nucleus hives because they fit in there. But those are going to stop. 
that's because it's a liquid jar inverted feeder. So the very microsecond that we get temps below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or even in the 30s, I don't even have to go all the way down to 32. If it's in the 30s, that's the end of feeding for even the nukes. So then we're just gonna see what we have. So why should you put a nuke together? You get a swarm. It, right after watching this video, you walk outside and oh man, there's a swarm in that tree branch. You have a couple of choices. Chances are it's from you. Uh, what could you do with it? Would you hype them up? So the colony they came from is doomed. They just shed their queen and they have a replacement queen at a time when all the drones are being slaughtered. So you have to find out what colony they came from. You have to get them back in there. You have to get that queen in there. Uh, because it's too late to make a new queen. So now we've got a doomed colony. So it's not just that you've got this swarm that a lot of people consider worthless. You've got a colony somewhere that's big enough to generate a swarm this time of year. They're queenless. You're going to lose them. They're just going to die through winter. And in spring, you're going to have a little cluster of bees in a corner somewhere with no queen. And all they did was die through attrition. And uh, so... But let's say somebody else calls you and they live in the woods and you know there's no beekeepers around and they say, hey, would you come and get a swarm right now? Would you do it? I would, and here's why. I would take that swarm and put them in a nuke box. What do we need more than anything and what are swarms really good at? Swarms build comb really good. They're loaded up, they're ready to do it. I would feed them, I would feed them silly. I would put feed on those things until they made as much comb as it possibly could. Are they doomed? 99.9% .9 of the time, that colony is not going to survive winter. But what did you just do? You got five frames of drawn comb. Not a total loss. They built it up. Maybe miracle of miracles, they survive and they're alive in spring. Now you have this fantastic, you have great genetics is what you have. So you've got a colony that made it from nothing. So either way, it's a win-win. You get drawn comb, you get a colony that supercharged you can add to something later. You also have an insurance policy. If one of your colonies proves to be queenless, you have a new queen, you pop her in. You're good to go. So insurance policies don't pass up late season swarms. We're in the fluff section. So first of all, uh, my grandson wanted to actually be here today to answer questions. So let's keep in mind that he's eight years old. He wants to get some questions. So if there are any questions, if you have kids sitting at home, I know your kids are not watching this. They would just fall out of their chairs of boredom. But if you have little kids at home that have B questions for my grandson, he would be happy to answer your questions for an eight-year-old. Now, he did a study of his own, which is pretty interesting, just yesterday. So we're teaching the scientific method to him. Uh, he came in, he was pretty upset because a uh, honeybee went between his t-shirt and his chest, stung him, and of course we had to get the stinger off, but guess what we did have? He brought the bee with him because she was still under his shirt moving around. So we caught the bee, what did we get to do? And by the way, this is a great way to redirect somebody who's just been stung by a bee. We say, oh, great opportunity. Now you get to find out, is this, first of all, did it hurt more than a yellow jacket that you just got stung by. Yeah, the honeybee to him hurt much more than the yellow jacket that he was stung by. And then we took the 
honeybee that had stung him and we show that her singer was missing because you know she left it behind in his chest and then so we put that on the table and we set a timer next to it let's find out how long this bee lives without her stinger and he found out 57 minutes is how long she lived and uh, it's a great way to teach kids first of all we redirected so he's not even thinking about the pain of a stinger on his chest but uh, he is thinking about an opportunity from something that was bad that he experienced. So he's looking at that and uh, he also wanted to add the amount of time that it took me to get the timer out and ready to go because this is how he thinks, which is very interesting. Uh, he also helped me pull the Ross rounds. So you're gonna see another video about that. It's not gonna be at the end of today's video because I just don't have the time to put it together, but we are gonna put that out, so. He wants questions. If your kids have questions, send them to Quinn, my grandson. He would be happy to answer you. I will video him answering the questions and we'll add that to the tail end of next Friday's Q&A or we'll make it a standalone. I haven't decided. So these are the things that we want to think about for today. Uh, your kind of plan of the week for what's ahead. Um, so we already talked about Prepare your rapid rounds, get your food ready, make sure you have dry powdered sugar if that's what you're going to feed, um, the fondant and things like that. If you're making your own fondant, whatever you're using, just make sure that you have some way to get that on your hives. This is happening soon. And as I mentioned before, the Hive Alive, for those who think they're gonna need more than the two pound packs, they now have the five pound packs. And uh, you can use the discount link that's on my website. Link to that will be down in the video description. Uh, the mountain camp method, again, dry sugar. By the way, some people think that using natural sugar or raw sugar, which has molasses in it, it's dark brown, uh, they think that that might be a good thing to put in for your bees. It is not. In fact, it's detrimental. Uh, the reason that it's detrimental is it puts a lot of ash and solids into your bees' uh, digestive system, which means they have to fly more often and they have to cleanse their gut. When the temperatures get really bad, it gets really cold, uh, they can't do that. So the white processed sugar is the best. If you have a chance, pick cane sugar if you can. And uh, it's really sucrose, but we want it to be clean so that the bees' guts are not affected. Even dark honey has more particulates in it. That's where it gets its color. And that ends up being more of a challenge for the bees again. Light honey uh, is less demanding as far as the particulates that end up in your bees' gut. So they need to do cleansing flights. If you're in an area where they can do cleansing flights every couple of days, every day or whatever, you're not in a pickle. But if you're in the northern climates or areas where it's going to get cold and they won't have flying days, you need to really consider what kind of sucrose you're giving. So also always walk through and look at your beehives to see if everything is lined up right. Uh, sometimes too late. You, know, you put your whole hive together, it's all set up and you look at the very bottom board, here's the landing board. And here's your bottom box and they're askew a little bit. And heaven forbid, you see their little heads poking out down there. You can take a bar clamp. Every beekeeper should have these. Bar clamps, you know, they've got the threaded end. You just put it on the top of one piece and the bottom where they're misaligned and you use that little turn handle and it'll just gradually pull them into alignment. Bees don't even know you're doing anything. There's no bumping and banging. All you're doing is cranking that little clamp and it draws it into alignment. This is the time to do it. While the weather's still warm, when it gets cold, the propolis is gonna be like a vice. So check all the alignment, look for little holes. 
my grandson and I we went around and we looked for little gaps and things. And uh, we ended up using propolis like putty and puttying up little holes and things. So every hive that we inspected that we packed down, we look for those openings. We look for the little crevices, particularly on that, that rabbit joint, right where your frames rest, right on the ends. That is the most likely one to open up just a little bit from the um, warping of your wood. So we filled that with propolis to make sure that bees cannot come and go and also that uh, there would be no airflow through there. Uh, the other thing is that right now, don't forget your, your garden centers and things like that are getting rid of their perennial plants. So this is a great time for you to go and bargain shop because insider scoop on that, when they get to the end of the growing season, I don't know where you are, but uh, they actually compost a lot of that. So it's a great time to, I don't know, make friends with some of the salespeople and you can get perennials that are good for your bees. And you want to know what your bees are after? Walk around the garden center, see what they're on right now. You see a bunch of bumblebees on stuff? That is not necessarily an indicator of a plant that's going to be good for honeybees. Here's why. Bumblebees have longer tongues. Honeybees cannot access the nectar. All the bumblebees can. So look for honeybees on plants to know. And then look up the plant that they're on. Where would be a great place to check? Hmm. The Xerxes Society. They tell you, based on the plant, uh, what the nectar value is and what the pollen value is and so on. So late season swarms, as I mentioned, comb builders for next year. North American Honeybee Expo is in January, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm going to be there. I'm a presenter. I don't know what topic I'm doing yet. Cayman Reynolds is putting it on. Um, last year, a bunch of people tried to go to the conference down in Sevierville, Tennessee, and tickets were sold out. So get tickets if you're interested in going there. I will definitely be there. Next thing is process all your honey and wax before winter hits. If you're here in the northeastern United States, who wants to work in a cold garage or a cold barn or a cold shed? Process your stuff. Get it into small jars and stuff. Now I'm all done with mine. I have one five-gallon bucket left, but it's all going into jars this weekend. And that's it. I'm done. So do the processing now because who wants to work in that uh, terrible weather? If you have a big heated garage or something or a giant heated barn, then uh, good for you. Anyway, mouse guards on now before it gets cold. When it really gets cold, they're going to be moving into your beehives. What should the entrance size be? Three-eighths of an inch high up to three inches wide. And the width for me... This is the maximum width for my opening, or yeah, the maximum, the minimum, maximum, minimum. Okay. The minimum is so that I can hook this into the hive and pull out dead bees in the middle of winter. So three eighths of an inch in height, even the um, little pygmy shrew can't get in there. So that's it for that. Make sure your mouse guards are on three eighths high up to three inches wide and uh, critters won't get in there and you'll still be able to scrape out dead bees at the entrance. You only need to clean the entrance so that when those cleansing flight opportunities come around, your bees are not stuck inside to where they can't fly. I hope you found today's uh, topics interesting. If you have some thoughts that uh, there are things that you'd like to know about that we have not covered, this is a playlist. It is also a podcast. I'll say it again. 
the way to be podcast. If you've got something on your mind, you just have to talk to somebody right now and you can't wait for a Q&A next Friday. Google the way to be T H E W A Y T O B E E fellowship. The way to be fellowship is on Facebook. You apply to join and then there's somebody there from your neck of the woods. I guarantee it. You can bounce your ideas, concerns, current issues going on. You can post a picture of what is going on with my hive and get a bunch of opinions from very helpful people. There are no questions that are too basic there. And you can also talk about advanced things too. So we don't allow advertising. We don't allow politics. You, it's a free zone where you can really talk about bees and not be made to feel bad about maybe some things you don't understand. So I hope you'll be there for that. Thanks for watching. Have a fantastic weekend.